Hello, chums, and welcome to the Palace of Glittering Delights. A couple of episodes ago, I got an email from Dad Doherty asking me, why do I not cover more Star Trek? And I gave the answer that there's lots of shows that cover Star Trek, um, and I didn't want this to be a Star Trek show. Well, as happens, um, I got home and the house is empty, which is glorious. It's always nice when that happens. And I just got an urge to watch an episode of Star Trek. So I've queued up the Netflix. Um, and I'm going to watch the episode Mirror Mirror. Because it is one of my favourite episodes from the original series run. So I'm just doing this little ramble at the beginning to give you all time to go oh, to the Netflix. Because I'm sure that every single one of the 2.4 million people who listen to this show. Listen to the audio commentaries in sync with the thing that I'm talking about. I'm, I'm absolutely certain that that happens. A couple of things different about this recording. Obviously, I am in the living room, so I can watch it on the big telly. So there's a little more echo to uh, to the recording than what the sound normally sounds like. And you may hear the cats skittery, scattery, pittery, pattery across the floor. Came Zachary quacking around because we've got two new little kittens who um, have no boundaries, should we say. So they may come and interrupt because they don't know when fine art is being made. Anyway, I've given you enough time to faff around with your own personal Netflix or get your own DVDs or whatever. Uh, I have scrolled through the list of episodes of the original Star Trek. I am on Mirror Mirror and I have pressed the X button to load up. Which it is doing. I have paused it to zero, zero, colon, zero, zero, destruct, zero. Oh shit, I've just set the self destruct. Anyway, while I sort that out, cue the music. Is anybody out there? Roll up, roll up. Ladies and gentlemen, children of all ages, books, comics, sci fi, TV, and film, live from the Palace of Glittering. And we're back, so we're going straight into Mirror Mirror. I've got it on 0000. My Netflix runtime on this episode is 50 minutes 30 seconds. I don't know what your DVD or Blu ray runtime is, but that's the Netflix runtime. And I'm pressing play right about now. Now, obviously, I will be adjusting the volume because that seems a tad loud for. Um, but I will leave the subtitles on. I will also be commenting on the dialogue in this episode, which is some of the finest in Star Trek history. Um, I am of the opinion that the second season of the original Star Trek is quintessential Star Trek. This is where the creative team were firing on all cylinders. The special effects guys, the lighting guys, everybody looks as iconic as you expect them to look. Spock's hers, the right length in series two, whereas in the early first season episodes it was a little bit short. Shatner is perfect as Kirk in these episodes. He's not too heavy, he's not too skinny like he was in the early episodes. He's got that little forelock thing over his face. Sulu, um, Chekhov isn't wearing the fright wig anymore, the Davy Jones fright wig. Interestingly, this is one of the few episodes to actually have the entire cast in it. Kirk, Spock, McCoy, 
Sulu, Chekhov, Uhura and Scott. If you actually go back and watch the original episodes, very few have all of them in at the same time <coughs> due to, excuse me, casting availability, budget, um, Mark Cushman's books have certain members of the cast written out of episodes at the behest of producer Robert Justman to save them money on numerous occasions. Anyway, the episodes opened on uh, Kirk having a conference with the Halkin Council and the Federation saying they're not going to force them to do what they want to. They have beamed back to the ship only to be beamed up wrongly by that dumbass transporter officer, officer sorry, Kyle. Oh, Kyle. Kyle would return in Star Trek to the Wrath of Kyle, which is, is quite interesting. This is the enhanced edition I'm watching, because that's the one that's on Netflix. They've done a good job with these enhanced special effects, I have to say. That shot there of the Enterprises twisting and flickering was interesting. They have now beamed onto the Mirror Universe. Um, now, on the face of it, you'd think that this episode cost a lot more money than an average episode. And it did. It, it put the studio in a bit of a deficit. But in terms of costumes, only Kirk and the women have new costumes. Uhura's got the Burr Midriff thing going on, where they probably just ripped up an old costume. Kirk's got a, a genuine new tunic on, the, the gold lame thing that he's wearing. Spock's just wearing a dress uniform with a cravat. Um, he does look impressive in his, his Vulcan beard. Has to be said. Hmm. Let's take a sip of tea, though. Our crew have realised that they're not where they should be and are weighing up the situation, showing um, Kirk's intelligence in dealing with situations like this. McCoy, Scotty and Uhura all have the brains to keep quiet. Well, except Uhura, who went to Scotty and said, what am I wearing? And Scotty said, shut up, woman. You're going to get us killed. Oi, you're going to get us killed. Oi. That's probably more like what he said. They've tarted up the special effects on the agonizer there, I noticed. That's, that's quite cool. Well, they've done that. And uh, it leaves a glow on his shoulders as, as Kyle falls to the floor because of his ineptitude in beaming our heroes aboard. <sighs> what he deserved, quite frankly. Uh, cue the opening credits. Still, I think, the finest opening credits of, uh, of any television show. The evocative, provocative, exciting. Whoosh! Goes the Starship Enterprise. Uh, again, these are the tarted up credits of the... Enhanced editions or special editions or HD editions, whatever you want to call them. Thankfully, Netflix isn't showing the widescreen prints that I have been unfortunate enough to catch a couple of times on sci-fi. Oh, music! Star Trek! Let's all watch Star Trek! Come with me, because Star Trek is on! Let's all get together and watch Star Trek with Leonard Nimoy. It's Star Trek here on TV. That was good, that. Lay the proper lyrics, what Gene Roddenberry ditched, um, ripped um, 
Alexander Courage out of money for that is that is true they're the proper lyrics not me I wouldn't lie to you uh, this was written by Jerome Bixby and directed by Mark Daniels obviously entitled Mirror Mirror always worth looking up what the Japanese titles for um, Star Trek were this particular episode was called Terror of the Ion Turbulence which I just think is an absolutely brilliant title I think that's great Bixby's original script went through a lot of rewrites, as usual for season two of Star Trek. Gene Kuhn and Dorothy Fontana both had a hand in the rewrites of this particular episode. Um, originally, Bixby apparently only had Kirk go to the Mirror Universe, and that was essentially rewritten because there were extras in the script. And it was Roddenberry who apparently said, well, can't we use some of our regular cast instead of you know, paying an extra, because an extra will require payment above and beyond a non-speaking part. And if we're going to do that, we may as well use our regular cast of, of characters. Kirk pushing his look there by bluffing his way through what's going on. Again, Scotty and Uhura. Bones has the good sense to keep his mouth shut. But Scotty and Uhura are very, uh, what the hell's going on? You've got to say, Nichelle Nichols has some pretty impressive abs in this episode. I don't know whether she knew this script was coming up and therefore started doing sit-ups. But uh, quite an impressive belly she's got going on there. One of the things... I, that's ridiculous. I would not remember where I spilled a cup of tea over a year ago on the exact spot. It's slightly silly that... Uh, McCoy remembers that. If there are nits to pick with Mirror Mirror, and of course there are nits to pick with Mirror Mirror, it's that Kirk figures out what's going on here really very quickly. You know, it's it's like the transporter chief mentioned a surge of power and the ion storm, and then we were somewhere else. Aye. And then from that, Kirk makes the kind of deductive leap that is is quite remarkable. That they're in a parallel universe. And everyone else just like goes along with it. Because yeah, it's as good an explanation as any Jim. But he does he does make that deductive leap rather quickly in an otherwise quite tight episode. Um, my argument as well, if we're gonna nitpick, is how did the transporter malfunction that caused this cause the clothes to change? Because as we are about to see, we're going to cut back to the regular universe in a moment. And mirror universe Kirk is wearing Captain Kirk's green wraparound tunic, which is what Jim was wearing in the opening scene. So how this transporter beam malfunction managed to change their clothes is also a little bit bit dubious. Are they naked when they go through the transporter? Or does it materialise the clothes a nanosecond or a picosecond after everything else? What if there's a mistake in, in that particular thing and somebody beams on with the naked? I mean, I'm sure Kurt wouldn't object to a hurrah, but you've been on naked, but you know what he is. He gives everyone a job to do because he's Kurt. Kuhura's frightened. Because that's what Uhura's here to do. Um, that's a little bit demeaning to a character, I'll be honest with you. I think Uhura's probably stronger than that, or she would be nowadays. She's got a job to do. Get on with it. 
Bones and, and Kirk, very sensibly, do some research of history. Interesting changes to some of the uniforms as well. Sulu's wearing red rather than his usual gold, which he would wear as command. Thing about this one as well, the music in this particular episode is great. It's mostly, I believe, tracked from other episodes because although I think of this as the mirror mirror theme, dun 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 dun, it actually originates from um, Balance of Terror, I believe, isn't it? The Romulan theme from Balance of Terror. So I don't know whether it's rescored for this episode or they're just tracking that music from Balance of Terror rather than it being um, an all-new score. I don't recall there being new music in this episode. I think it is all tracked from other episodes. Unusually, when Uhura sat at her desk, though, one of her monitor screens is covered up by a piece of black felt for some reason. Sexual harassment in the workplace, though, from Mr. Sulu, as he is... Um, <laughs> no doubt what his intentions are to Lieutenant Uhura. So, in a good piece of writing, Kirk has problem piled upon problem. Not only has he ended up in this mysterious parallel universe, and got to figure out a way home, or at the very least a, a way to survive, but he's also got to find a way to not destroy the Halkin Council, which in the Mirror Universe are his orders. It's unusual, though, the shot of the planet from the view screen still looks very grainy. I wonder why they've uh, they've not tarted that up. I like as well, I don't know, it may be a subtle touch, but all of the security guards in the Mirror Universe are buff, muscular men. A little bit more so than perhaps you see in the original show, or on, in the original universe. I think one of the things that Star Trek did very well was its attention to detail. Everything's labelled main phase of power control, no admittance, authorised personnel only. That there are signage that you would see in a, in a, a ship, on a submarine or, or an aircraft carrier. They've made subtle alterations as well to the bridge of the Enterprise. The bridge doors, the lift doors, the turbo lift doors have the Empire symbol on them, which is a saw sticking through the earth. And Kirk's chair has a higher back to it, which um, has appeared in another episode. Was it the Ultimate Computer or...? One of the other ships, one of the sister ships to the Enterprise has, has had that show in a previous episode. Performances in this one are um, undeniably brilliant. You know, George Takai relishes the opportunity to do something a bit more than usual, as does Walter Koenig, although I still don't think Walter Koenig is the best actor in the world. Um, they all seem to be relishing doing different things. Leonard Nimoy is particularly impressive in this one. If you actually watch and study his performance, he's, um, he's, he's burly repressing his anger. It's a very subtle performance that he's given. The Halkin Council leader seen on the view screen here is obviously Vic Perrin. He was in a number of episodes of Star Trek, I think. Also the voice of um, Control in The Outer Limits. I don't understand, again, why the Mirror Universe Hulkans are as timid, for want of a better word, as they are in our universe. 
is the implication of the mirror universe that only Earth or the Federation or whatever is is warlike? Are the Klingons of the mirror universe weak and timid, say, or are they as aggressive and warlike as um, perhaps they are in our universe? It doesn't doesn't actually state anything. This episode got the producers in trouble. Um, one of the NBC executives apparently came down to the studio after the filming of this episode, after they'd seen a cut of it, saying that Jerry Finneman, who was the director of photography, was spending too much time and money on the lighting. And just leave it. Colour will sort itself out. And Finneman apparently exploded at the NBC guy. That's a brilliant shot, Coates out the elevator and just takes a palm to the face. Beautifully sold by Shatner, almost um, Harrison Ford level. Um, what's great about this scene is Kirk doesn't take any shit because he's Captain Kirk. In Britain, on the BBC, where there's no adverts, disobeyed prime orders of the Empire. Cut. We cut though, and we didn't fade to black. Cause I had this one on videotape, taped off the TV for ages. And we came back on. Oh, that's, that's not a very good CD shot of the Enterprise, is it? Oh, no, the, the disc looks back. We came back on. Here. So they cut out the fade to black and the captain's log. As a kid, that kind of thing irritated me once I saw it on VHS and saw it uncut. As an adult, I can kind of under, understand why the BBC did that. You know, at the time, nobody will have seen it on American television. There were no pirated copies or anything like that. And we don't have commercial breaks on the BBC, so it doesn't make sense to leave the commercial stinging and cut and leave the captain's log bringing you up to speed after the commercials. There have been no commercials. Anyway, nice little fight. Oh, this bit's, this bit's really funny. The guard who tries to curry favour with Kirk and then, not on my ship. <laughs> Genuinely funny line, beautifully undersold by Shatner. Uh, what was I saying? Oh yeah, Jerry Finneman. Jerry Finneman exploded at the NBC guy, telling him that lighting was an art form and he lights this show as he thinks suits the show. Um, and as you can see, if you're watching it, that scene in the turbo lift was beautifully lit. The scene in um, Sick Bay Now is beautifully lit. And to the credit of Gene Roddenberry, Roddenberry backed up his director of photography. Roddenberry said to the NBC guy, look, Finneman's ha we're happy with what Finneman's doing. We think he's a quality DP and we're not going to ask him to change. And apparently the NBC guy went back to the studio huffing and puffing. But um, it's, I think it's a side of Roddenberry that doesn't get explored a lot. We all know, as I said earlier on, he wrote lyrics to the theme tune to this to kind of take off some money off Alex Courage. And we've heard a lot about his underhand dealings, but in... In instances like that, he had his people's backs. And um, I think that, that should be noted as part of his personality as well. Another example of Star Trek's attention to detail and continuity is this scene, where Kirk asks information from the computer and it says that he rose to the level of uh, captain of the Enterprise by assassinating Captain Christopher Pike, which is um, a nice nod to Star Trek continuity. I think it's worth noting as well, 
you know, Shatner gets a lot of flack as well, you know, and he can be hammy and over the top on occasion. But if you look at this entire scene, McCoy and, and Scotty aren't speaking. It's Kirk holding your attention. And by God, the man's magnetic. He really is. I mean, this, this isn't even his best scene in this episode. The best scene in this episode is the Kirk speech at the end. One of the things I've often thought, you know, if you were going to become a politician, what I would do is I'd employ Shatner to read all my speeches because, God, the guy can deliver. Um, that's that's a good inversion of Dr. McCoy's regular line about, I'm a doctor, not a insert name of whatever Dr. McCoy isn't here. <clears throat> oh, need a drink. I think that's a bit dangerous, that Bones. I don't know that you want to find out what kind of people you are in this universe. There seems to be a statue behind Captain Kirtler with... Um, Somebody having a, a gigantic eruption. There you go, assassination of, of Christopher Pine. Now I can't not look at it because it's off the edge of the frame so I can't see what else it is. But it really does look like a hand wrapped around a, a, an erect penis. <laughs> oh, damn it. I think it's supposed to be his legs. Right, we've just got a wide shot. Right, okay. That's a little bit better, I suppose. <laughs> anyway, they're... Um, Working out how to get home. One of the things about the HD prints of these particular episodes, obviously this is as crystal clear as we're probably ever going to see this stuff, it was shot on film. So they've tidied it up very nicely. But you can see the amount of pancake makeup that um, all of them are wearing. But it's particularly noticeable on, on Shatner. Shatner seems to have a powdery pancake on his face, perhaps to make him less shiny, maybe he was a sweater. I don't know than the other ones. Um, back in our universe, Spock is locking up. Shatner's going all out in this scene, beautifully offset by Nimoy, who is just sat there, stood there, sorry, going, oh, that is not going to happen, Captain. Just playing it as cool as you like. What kind of uniform is this? Where's your beard? What's going on? Where's my personal guard? It's quite impressive that he's... Uh, where's the beard? And instantly turning on the chair. A great little scene, this. It would have been interesting, perhaps, to see a little bit more of this side. How quickly did Spock realise that this wasn't Kirk, Uhura, Scotty and Mackay? You know, I mean, he's obviously got him in the brig pretty sharpish. I suppose it helps that they're not armed in this universe. They don't have the knife on the hip like they do in the mirror universe. Again, lots of little things that they've done. The um, All of the doors have the Empire symbol on them. The knife through the planet, which is quite good. The fact that Spock has a Vulcan guard was not a scripted notion. That apparently came from director Mark Daniels, who felt that that's something that made sense, that Spock would have the only people that he could trust, which would be other Vulcans. The Agony Booth's great. I do love the Agony Booth. And it's tarted up the special effects very nicely. 
on the agony booth there. It's not just Chekhov writhing in pain. They've added a, a glow around him. They have decided. Shatner underplaying. Which um, he doesn't get a lot of credit for. But when he does underplay, it's always masterfully timed. I wonder what's where the agony booth is on our universe. I wonder what they have in there, in that little alcove. I wonder how many agony booths they have. I can't imagine there's much in the way of mutiny on a, on a mirror universe ship. You know, again, another example of the HD. You can actually see the spirit glue holding Leonard Nimoy's beard on. One of the things I did not notice when I was watching this show as a kid, possibly because of the limited transmission, limited quality of the transmission, was that Spock has purple eye makeup in between his, his top eye and his, his eyebrows. I only noticed that when I saw Star Trek II The Wrath of Khan um, for the first time. And it was only when I went back and saw the show you know, on videotape and so on and so forth on bigger and better quality televisions that I noticed that that was indeed a thing. Oh, the cat is knocking at the door. Hello, cat. I don't know if she wants to come in or not. Are you going to keep knocking at the door? Okay, well, I'll let her in. Why, um, Kirk and Spock are waving their dicks at each other. There you go, cat. Do you wish to join me, cat? Do you wish to watch Star Trek? Feel free. Come and watch Star Trek. Don't rub against my microphone. That wouldn't be a good thing. Oh, Kirk's humanity showing through. Don't know, that's a good idea. The salute's good as well. I do like the uh, idea of the salute being fist to the chest and then hand out straight. Sort of almost a Nazi salute, but not quite. That's quite interesting. I mean, other than the little the little nitpicks that we've got, this is quite a tightly scripted episode. There's an awful lot going on in this one 50-minute show. You know, it's very, very fast-paced. And if you think about it, we're, what, 20, 20 minutes or so into it? And we haven't even met Marlena yet, who will prove to be a, a big part of the... Um, oh, that squeaky thing was just a, an air freshener thing because of the cat. Who will prove to be a big part of, of the episode in many ways. Although she is asleep on, um, on Kirk's bed. Um... I do like the thigh-high boots that the women are wearing as well, it has to be said. A little bit of sexism though. I do apologise to all the ladies that are listening. Oh, slow, sexy, seductive Mirror Universe music. Um, Barbara Luna, who played Marlena Moreau. Or Mar Is it Marlena Moreau? Marlena on the Wall? That's who Suzanne Vega sang. Marlena Monroe. Um, had strep throat, apparently, when she filmed this episode. So, was not allowed to kiss William Shatner during the course of filming. Because they didn't want the lead actor getting ill, obviously. So, she had to come back whilst they were filming the next episode for them to do the kissing scenes. Apparently Bill Shatner's a good kisser, according to Miss Luna. And uh, who am I to argue with her? So I don't know whether this entire scene was shot at a later date, because 
there's no cut though before she moves in to kiss him. It does look like it's one long take. So maybe this entire scene was shot later. One would have thought that to save money they would have shot it in such a way that the kiss was a different angle or a different shot. Or, so they could have got as much of that in the can as possible. But apparently not. The lighting in Kirk's quarters. Again, Jerry Finneman showing just what an expert he was. I do think it's one of the... One of the things that the later shows are missing, until Enterprise, which I do think Enterprise was um, very well lit, a very well lit show. Next Gen looks flat, Voyager looks flat, Deep Space Nine has moments, but if you just look, look at how beautifully lit these shots are of Kirk and Spark, the reflections on the wall, the set dressing, everything that's, that's going on is beautifully photographed by, by Jerry Finneman. Commercial break. Uh, I don't recall if this commercial break was cut out. I don't think it was, because that's not a cliffhanger or anything. Oh, the cat has decided that she does not want to watch Star Trek, and off she could go. <laughs> I do like lazy James T. Kirk. I like the casual way that he sat at his desk there with his feet up. I like that. I don't know why I like that. I like that moment in um, Star Wars where Han Solo does exactly the same thing, really, when they're in the Death Star and he's dressed as a stormtrooper and he just sits there with his feet on the on the desk. And that's really cool. And this is where he learns about the Tantalus field. This is what I mean about this episode being beautifully constructed. The information... Other than Kirk's masterful deductive leap as to how what happened to them happened to them. The way the story structured, you're being given new information throughout. It isn't all set up at the beginning, paid off at the end. We're halfway through the show here. And we're, we've only just met a character who will become pivotal to the ending of the episode. And we've only just been introduced to the, the device that will allow him to end the episode. Uh, it, it literally is a, a, a deus ex machina, this machine. Um, Marlena actually, as good as says so, Kirk found this Tantalus thing on some planet somewhere, created by some scientist, he doesn't even know his name, and he had it installed on the Enterprise. Presumably he killed the people who installed it for him later. But... Um, that's, that's, so that's, you know, this is what I mean about there are nitpicks aplenty in this particular show. And yet, I don't care. It's just such a great episode. It's fun. It's exciting. It's well performed. Very well acted by everybody. There's a lot going on behind the eyes. I always think that's good, good acting. When the eyes are saying something perhaps different to what the dialogue is or the body language. Shatner's playing Kurt very close to the chest here in that he's still treading lightly. He, doesn't, he hasn't quite got the measure of this parallel universe just yet. So he's, he's been very careful what he says and how he says it. I like that Marlena refers to herself as the captain's woman. Uh, apparently led to a couple of people writing and saying, can, can Captain Kurt not have a captain's woman on a regular basis? And uh, 
the producers writing back and saying, you may want to ask your parents what a captain's woman is. And that uh, killed any of the letters. Is it not attracting suspicion that Dr. McCoy is working in engineering with Mr. Scott? You would think that it would. But uh, unless they're doing all this in secret, nobody can say, I suppose. Um, again, look at the lighting, the frame. The directing on this one's quite good. I mean, a lot of the times, it has to be said, television direction tends to be quite workmanlike. Point the camera, get the performance, move on to the next shot. I think one of the places where Star Trek was perhaps costing a little bit more money than uh, it should do is that the directors were using interesting camera angles and doing interesting things with the camera, like that shot earlier on that I loved of Kirk just stepping out of the elevator and a hand coming out of frame and smacking him in the face. I mean, a lot of this is just two shots, but it's the lighting, the lighting that sells it. And it's amazing to me that Jerry Finneman was doing this for television sets that he knew probably wouldn't pick up on the nuance of what he was doing. But it certainly um, put the series in good stead in its afterlife. Whereas watching this now, I think this the the actual look of the original Star Trek, the the you know the explosions of colour notwithstanding, I, I think this this holds up as just entertainment. 50 years later. It's not a lot of shows from 1966, 67 that you could watch nowadays and be thoroughly engrossed by it from start to finish. But there's a reason Star Trek is well remembered, fondly remembered by a lot of people. And that that is because it, it's just, it just holds up as entertainment. Solid entertainment. Again, you can kind of see the makeup job where Sulu's scar is the... Sulu plotting kind of with Spock to kill Captain Kirk because Sulu's third in command on the Mirror Universe Enterprise. So it does beg the question, is Scotty just an engineer in the Mirror Universe? Again, that's just a nitpick, though. It doesn't really matter. The Mirror Universe um, became a source of, of great story potential for the expanded universe writers. You know, Mike Barr did a brilliant Mirror Universe story in the DC Star Trek comic. Um, immediately following the aftermath of Star Trek Three: The Search for Spark. Ran for nine or ten issues, I think, the, um, the Mirror Universe story. Though. I, think, I think that was the first Mirror Universe sequel as well. And um, they've done Mirror Universe episodes of Deep Space Nine. It became a regular thing on Deep Space Nine. Where they just they weren't as fun. They just weren't as fun as this. I think with Deep Space Nine, it just became an excuse to kill off regular cast members in in explosive and interesting ways. But I don't think the stories were ever as interesting. Although it has to be said, Kira's ass was nice in that leather outfit. But it was never. They never did a Mirror Universe episode of Deep Space Nine that was as good as this episode of the original Star Trek. Um, they did do an episode or two episodes of Enterprise set completely in the Mirror Universe. Had no appearances by the, I don't know if it's called the Prime Universe or Our Universe or whatever, but had no appearances by the characters in the regular universe. The entire story took place in the Mirror Universe and was, in addition to being a Mirror Universe, was a sequel to the third season episode, The Tholian Web where it established that the Defiant in the Tholian web 
was actually blinking in and out of dimensions and was appearing in the parallel universe. So in addition to being a Mirror Mirror prequel, it was also a Tholian Web sequel. And it's it's a great two-part episode of that show. Um, Scott Bakula uh, looking brilliant in, in Kirk's wraparound green tunic. The design and sets of the original show from the 60s showing just how masterful they were holding up on a television show shot in HD in 2000... Was it 2004, that episode, 2005? I can't remember when Enterprise ran from. I think it was... Was it 2001 to 2006 or something like that? 2000 to 2004? Hey, it doesn't really matter. Oh, Kurt gets his snog on because, of course, he does. Now, what's interesting about this, a lot of people like to point to Kirk the womanizer. I don't think he was a womanizer as much as memory says that he was. You know, his relationships, he kept them off the bridge in most instances. Here, he's using this woman. He's using Marlena to get what he wants. He's basically pumping her for information and perhaps literally pumping her for information. I don't know if there's a, a gap in the, the chronology of the episode, this episode, sorry, where he could uh, take the captain's woman to the captain's bed and she could perform some captain's head. I don't know if that... Uh, I don't think there's a point in this episode where that could happen. But as I say, what he's doing, he's not romancing her. He's using her to get what he wants. So I would again argue this isn't Kirk the womanizer. It's Kirk the captain doing everything necessary to achieve his goal. Uh, I do wonder why the corridors of the Enterprise are so empty in the Mirror Universe. I don't know. Anyway, um, speaking of, of other Mirror Universe stories, um, one of my personal favourites was Diane Duane wrote a, a Star Trek novel, Dark Mirror, um, which was interesting purely because it, it predates the Deep Space Nine Mirror Mirror Universe episode. And um, the next generation didn't do a Mirror Universe episode, which is, is very odd given ripe potential but also Ronald Moore who worked on Next Gen as a writer and went on to Deep Space Nine and Battlestar Galactica and has wrote an episode of the new Philip K. Dick's Electric Dreams I think he does Outlander as well I think he works on Outlander um, has said this is one of his favourite episodes so this certainly would have been an opportunity for the Next Generation crew to go off I remember that being a very good novel um, I've not read it in 15 years but I recently found a hardcover copy for a quid, so I've bought that and I will be rereading it, because, uh, like I said, I remember that being quite interesting. There's, as I record this, there's a Mirror Universe story being published by IDW. So this is an episode that has lingered long in people's memories as a, a fan favourite. It's also one of the rare episodes that I think lends itself to sequels. You know, one of the reasons I kind of dropped out of reading Star Trek novels... Oh, who are you, little tease? Um, is that every single character in in Star Trek was brought back? And I don't care what happens to Mira Remain after the lights of Zeta, but um, the Mirror Mirror Universe, yeah, this lends itself to sequels. I love that everybody's just watching Sulu and Uhura on the bridge, watching her prick tease Mr. Sulu. And I love the slovenly nature of the guards when the captain isn't on the bridge, just leaning angrily against the door. They do stand to attention when Sulu goes to the lift, though, the turbo lift, to stop him from attacking 
Lieutenant Hura. That was subtle, Captain. Uh, I don't think Spock saw you put that panel back after you'd just moved it. Are you going to shoot me now, Spock? This scene seems a little bit washed out. This doesn't seem as clear as the other scenes in the episode. And again, I'm going to focus on Jerry Finneman's lighting. Love that essentially he's got Leonard Nimoy and William Shatner there in a circle, a circle of light, like a stage light. The rest of the transport room in darkness. The direction of the shot is also great. Kirk in the foreground of the transporter pad going away like infinite lines meeting at infinity. Spock stood at the far end. It's a beautifully framed shot. Again, Star Trek paying attention to stuff like that. that other shows, maybe they would have just, right, you stand there, you stand there, shoot, let's go. That seemed like an edit, though. It seemed like Kirk was saying something to Spock as he walked out the door, but they trimmed the scene down, possibly. Spock's figured it all out, because Spock isn't stupid. And then all of a sudden, uh, Leonard Nimoy disappears completely to be replaced by somebody who doesn't look anything like him. <laughs> oh, that's another problem with HD, isn't it? Leonard Nimoy, not perhaps as interested in his doing his own fight scenes as, as William Shatner. It's actually quite laughable, really, because that... Did, it's obviously not, so obviously not Leonard Nimoy. <laughs> Although that does look like it was William Shatner. I mean, I don't know if it is, but it, it, it was good doubling. It's good doubling of Shatner if it isn't him. Whereas uh, Nimoy's double, not, not quite as good. Interesting and uh, true to canon, I suppose, that it took all four of them to take out Spock because he's a Vulcan and even in this mirror universe where time is running out the situation is dire McCoy will not leave Spock to die he will pick him up somewhere along the line Kirk's communicator has fallen out of his sash which makes sense because it didn't look like it was velcroed in like it is normally on his pants so it's going to keep an eye on that, see if that's a continuity give. It does make sense that after doing the fight scene, what I do like about that, I know I'm off all in tangents in this, but this is such a good episode. Um, Shatner's breathing heavily. So often you'll see fight scenes in movies and TV shows and scenes where the characters have been running and they'll instantly be back to normal and talking without breathing heavily. Here... Shatner and McCoy are both sweaty of face after that fight scene. And Shatner's still catching his breath. Or Kirk is still catching his breath. That's a lovely touch. A lovely, what's that? A lovely piece of, again, attention to detail. Because this scene could have been shot before or after the fight. Who will know? Sulu's just showed up to be the treacherous pig that he is. After a fierce battle. I love the way he says fierce battle. <laughs> Now, again, I think the British one cut the, the BBC print of this episode, cut the to remove the fade to black and came straight back on the. So they only cut the fade to black, though. They didn't, because there was no captain's log that they had to cut. And Marlena comes in with the deus ex machina where she just uses the Tantalis field to 
but do whatever the Tantalus field does. Because <laughs> again, it just makes people disappear. It literally makes people disappear from the plot so that they're not a problem anymore. And then... Dun, 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 dun. Boom, 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 boom. The other Star Trek fight music that isn't... Uh, dun, 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 dun. That heavy piano. I like that. Again, Star Trek's optimism shining through. He's the villain of the piece. McCoy will not let him die. He's not picked his communicator up yet. So if his communicator fell out of his sash, it's it's still fallen out. Keep me eye on that, although I don't know if you can't see the back of him much anymore. And Dr. McCoy comes through because, by God, that man can cure a rainy day. Which is quite easy to do, just get an umbrella. Are we going to get a reprise of the Amok Time music here where he forces a, a mind meld on Dr. McCoy? Again, beautifully lit. Beautifully lit, see. Yes, we are. Does Star Trek have the best incidental score of any television show ever? I don't know. It's certainly got to be up there. And then Marlena is now in the transporter room. Activate the transporter. Marlena in soft focus though. With the light playing across her eyes so that her eyes sparkle. Again, Jerry Finneman. Getting all due credit for his DP work. What is coming? I love that Kirk's hair is still messy after the fight scene. Again, sometimes in shows like that, they'll, they'll clearly seem to have messed up her, and then the next scene, it's perfectly quaffed. Da, 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 da. But uh, here, Kirk's hair is still sweaty, messy, and sweaty. Again. And of course, Uhura has to take down the girl because we can't have Captain Kirk hit a woman. Even though I'm sure he's hit a woman before. He smacks Thingy around, doesn't he? Oh, look, his, his communicator's back. His communicator's back in the back of his sash. Um, yeah, he smacks Thingy around a bit, doesn't he? In uh, Games of Triskelion? I think. I can't remember. I don't advocate stuff like that. I don't like hitting women. I don't like hitting women. I, don't, I didn't like it when Buffy used to get beaten up a lot. I mean, I know she could take it. But um, it's not something I, I enjoy watching. Not my thing, man. Oh, and the problem piles upon problem. It doesn't make sense. I love that Uhura doesn't volunteer to stay. <laughs> That's brilliant. Kirk's like, I'll stay. And Scotty's like, I'll stay, Captain. And Uhura's like, I'll burn down the transporter pad. It doesn't make sense, this. The captain staying is ridiculous because it, um, he's got a lot of knowledge that they could extricate from him. But of course, Spock arrives, and it's all going to be fine, because he will operate the transporter controls. Engineering. 
you tell. It is logical to swap them back. Oh, a Kirk speech coming up. Galactic Revolt. Now that's referring to a scene cut from this episode. The Hulk and Galactic Revolt hasn't actually in the episode. It was cut either from the script early on or cut from the episode before transmission. He's absolutely brilliant at speech is shatter, isn't he? Minute. 23 seconds. Predictable. Beneficial. Doesn't logic demand that you be a part of it? No, but one man can change the present. Be the captain of this enterprise, Mr. Spock. Find a logical reason to spare the Halkins and make it stick. Push till it gives. You can defend yourself better than any man in the fleet. He's... Aww. You know, you can say what you want about William Shatner and everybody who works on Star Trek has apparently got a Shatner story. But as a performer, the guy is magnetic. You know, there's a reason he was the star of the show. This is another one of Kirk's great speeches up there with um, Return to Tomorrow, The Risk is Our Business speech. He's absolutely masterful reading of the American Constitution as a Canadian man, which just shows what a brilliant actor he was. Um, look at the lighting on that scene. In every revolution, there's one man with a vision. Absolutely gorgeous. Beautiful lighting from Jerry Finman. Because there you go, it's just begging for a sequel, this episode. Spock saying, I shall consider what you're saying. Um, usually they've not redone the beam out. Again, we're going to go back into nitpicky mode here because um, isn't it fortunate that Spock had the Mirror Universe counterparts on the transporter pad at exactly the right time for this beam-out idea to work? And they're all back in their original uniforms. Again, how does that work? Uh, that's a nice camera angle. I, I like that, that new CG shot of the Enterprise. And we're all on the bridge for the wrap-up tag that uh, completed every episode. Yeah, you don't know that, Jim. Ironic that uh, McCoy says he likes Spock with the beard better, yet it's McCoy who will have the beard in Star Trek, uh, the motion picture. Leland Nimoy grew a beard in real life. Well, I don't think Spock ever had a beard. And Spock gets his witty little bon mot in. <coughs> Excuse me. Before the credits roll. Love this line. I'm not sure, but I think we've been insulted. I'm sure. <laughs> Genuinely funny little line, though. And Marlena shows up on the bridge. And this is the only time Kirk does anything even remotely unprofessional with a woman in his staff. He flirts openly, which has an odd connotation, given that this scene was the one that was taken out to be used in The Trouble with Tribbles. The Trouble with Tribbles, sorry, the... Um, Deep Space Nine episode, which I can't remember the title of. More Tribbles, More Tribbles? No, that was the animated episode, wasn't it? Um, I can't remember what it was called, but um, 
that was replaced with Commander Cisco. So it looks like he's flirting with Ben Cisco. <laughs> this is the only bit I don't. This is the only bit I'm, I'm not sure about. This. Kirk doesn't normally flirt openly with his crew members. He wasn't Will Riker, who you know shagged everybody and anything on the bridge and off the bridge. Kirk was more professional than that. And that was my commentary on Mirror Mirror. Star Trek, let's all watch Star Trek. Let's boldly go on a Star Trek. Let's explore new planets and places. Let's seek new friends and faces. Let's go where none have gone. Let's voyage where without storm. We'll go where no one has ever gone on a Star Trek. There you go. Again, they were the proper lyrics as written by um, Gene Roddenberry. So, um... If you don't believe me, look it up on the internet. I'm not making this shit up. You know, it's um, perfectly uh, believable that uh, I would come up with those. Because I, yeah, I just make that up. I can't just make that up. I'm not that gifted. Anyway, I appreciate you indulging me in uh, my watching of an episode of Star Trek. I very much hope you enjoyed it. As usual, this has been a Two True Freaks presentation. Um, proud affiliator of the Two True Freaks podcasting network. Uh, I've just spilled a bit of my tea, so that's me mopping up my tea there. Um, if you would like to support this fine network of shows, and why would you not? You can go through the um, the Two True Freaks homepage, click on the Amazon link when you're buying something from Amazon, give us a kickback, uh, because that's that's nice. It helps us keep the lights on. Leave a light on for me. Um, just before I go, the Indonesian dubbing has just come on Netflix. Uh, Nayota Uhura and Hikarai Sulu, not Hikaru Sulu. Uh, Leonard McCoy, Montgomery Scott and Pavel Chekhov, they all get the full names. Spock is Tun Spock. T-N. I don't know what that stands for. Maybe that's his Vulcan name. Tun. And that's why it's impronounceable. By mortal human tongue. Okay, let's have a look in the email sack. Before we wrap up this episode for today. My first email tonight is from Luke Giaconetti. Hello, Luke. Rick Jones, known to all, loved by none. Uh, so I presume by that title it is a reference to the Incredible Hulk Origins episode that I did uh, a while ago now. Uh, great, Andy. Just listened to your Origins of the Incredible Hulk episode and felt compelled to write in. I like it when I compel people to write in. The power of Andrew compels you. I like that. I think that's quite good. Like you, I was introduced to the Hulk at an early age via tie-in media. In my case, it was the animated cartoon from 1982, which was paired up with Spider-Man and his amazing friends on Saturday mornings. 
As a lifelong, as far as I can remember anyway, fan of monsters, I always liked the character of the Savage Hulk, a monster who fights other worse monsters. To this, I will also add that as someone who has had a very long and still ongoing battle with anger and rage issues, I've often thought that Hulk should be my character. The classic Hulk Boys Town National Hotline ad from the back of many a Marvel comic, we almost deal with the monster within, lingers to this day in my mind. For whatever reason, this never really came to be for me. Maybe it was just too close to home, so to speak, of my own personal issues. Or maybe I was just a stupid kid and never put two and two together until I was in college, I don't know. In any event, I do not regret my choice of devotion to Iron Man, old Green Jean's traditional neighbour in long boxes with large capital I scrawled on them in black magic marker. But I digress. It seems that the modern Hulk books are more focused on exploring different personality aspects of the Hulk, similar to how you mentioned that Planet Hulk and World War Hulk put new spins on concepts from these early stories, with Hulk as a gladiator or conqueror, instead of the psychological stuff Peter David did in the 80s and 90s, and the Bill Mantlo stuff from the 70s, mostly relegated to crazy Silver Age stuff, which bloggers have fun with rather than seriously examine. Which winds me back around to your episode, which I greatly enjoyed, because you looked at these issues critically, but not savagely. I've never read these very early ones. The earliest Hulk I have read is in Running Tales to Astonish, which I rather enjoyed. These issues seem scatterbrained and aimless compared to those later tales, by which time the formula of Stan's superhero soap opera was very much defined, both for Stan as the writer and as the reader. These stories seem more like Stan and Jack saying, let's make a monster into a hero, but then neither of them being quite sure to balance that equation. Ben Grimm looked monstrous, but he was still a man, whilst Hulk, by being the other to Banner, is clearly not a man. So these stories seem like throwing the proverbial spaghetti against the wall to see what will stick, which makes for good creative exercise, if not the greatest reading, other than the front part of the first issue, which sounded fantastic. But it made for excellent listening. I wanted to ask, did you read these issues? You read these issues, sorry, from what you call a pocket book. Is this the one you were reading from? And Luke has sent a link there to the British Panini Incredible Hulk pocketbook, The Coming of the Hulk, which would be available to, to you for the grand sum of $2.15, which I heartily encourage you purchase if you haven't read these early six stories. No, I was reading it from both the Omnibus and the 1978 Pocket Book, uh, Pocket Book being the publisher that had a number of colour pocketbook reprints of early Spider-Man, Hulk, Doctor Strange, because he just had a TV movie, I presume, and a couple of others, Fantastic Four and such. That's where I read it from. In any event, looking forward to the return of The Incredible Hulk, which I remember watching the day after it aired. Dad taped it for us, and my brother being extremely excited as he was a big Thor fan at the time. With six, you get egg roll, Luke. Well, thank you for emailing in, Luke. I'm glad that you enjoyed the episode. I hope you enjoyed the Incredible Hulk Returns commentary as much as uh, I enjoyed recording it. Yeah, that, just to go back to what you were talking about, though, I don't ever really try to be particularly savage about a lot of this stuff. If I'm covering it, it's because I like it in some way. There's quite a few episodes of both this and Hey Kids comics that have ultimately fell by the wayside because once I actually got into reading them there wasn't really a lot to say about it or I didn't like it very much so either way well, I'm glad that you appreciated that I wasn't savagely attacking them I do hope to think that I uh, covered them fairly our next email is from Nathaniel Wayne Planet of the Spin-Off so we're into the incredible the Planet of the Apes episode sorry the incredible Planet of the Apes that could have been a title couldn't it 
Nathaniel said, I've never tracked down the Planet of the Apes TV series, but as a lover of three-fifths of the original movie franchise, I've always been a bit curious about it. The few Apes fans I know who've tracked it down have pegged it largely as better than you'd expect, which may not be enough for me to vote the time to watch it. But it is nice to see that not all TV spinners have to be barrel-scraping sessions. You want another fun bit of, wait, is that continuity or just madness? Galen appears in the original Planet of the Apes film, or at least a character sharing his name. The Doctor, who initially operates on Taylor to save his life, has a little whining session with Zira, and is later identified as Galen during the trial. It's part of the prosecution's argument that he is a corrupt surgeon who helped Zira experiment on Taylor to make him capable of speech. We only see him in the one scene, and his name isn't even dropped until later, in a way that you have to put those pieces together yourself, so I'm not sure how many fans ever catch this. Seeing as there's numerous articles, and I think even a full-on book at one point, trying to make this universe make chronological sense, I'd love to see the contortions that continuity nuts would go through to explain this one. Great work, as always. Geekily, thos- geekily yours, Nathaniel Wayne. Well, thank you, Nathaniel. It seems to me the easy way to explain that is just they both have the same name. I'm sure you've met other people called Nathaniel in your life. I've met other people called Andrew. And that seems to be a very simple way of just explaining away that particular conundrum. Our final email tonight is from Jack Bone, who I've not heard from for a while. Apes with pet dogs. Andy, sorry you were ill, but thanks for writing an episode. There's a metaphor about lemons and lemonade that is probably not appropriate to use in a food poisoning case, so I'll just refer to this as your tummy ape episode. Tummy ape. Good, I'll see what you did there. I was old enough to watch the TV series in 1974 and bring whatever critical faculties a 10-year-old has to burr on it. I don't remember trying to fit into it fit it into sorry the continuity of the movies. At that time, my family had only seen the first two when they heard on TV, but so it is a different version of them. There were lots of different versions of things floating around back then. We kids enjoyed the TV series of The Odd Couple, The Courtship of Eddie's Father and MASH, but found the original movies unwatchable, at least the first time when they came around. There had just been the Saturday morning cartoons versions of Genie, the Brady Kids and Star Trek, which, to varying degrees, did not look or feel like the afternoon reruns, but were perhaps close enough to satisfy the hunger for more stuff like that. They don't really fit together, even with a continent between Taylor near New York City and Verdun Burke in the San Francisco Bay Area. Talking humans would be hard to keep as a surprise to one set of apes when the other sets ups administrations to govern over them. Better to set the TV show closer to battle for the Planet of the Apes, with Zeus being a historical figure to the lighter, and this astronaut from ten years prior merely being another one. Merely being another one. Time-displaced astronauts fall to Earth as often as kryptonite meteors. Quite the space programme they had to get them all launched before Zero and Cornelius made everyone aware of talking chimpanzees. Hope you turn to Planet... Oh, sorry, return to the Planet of the Apes at some point. This was the animated cartoon that Jack's talking about. As a kid and during the 21st century rewatch, I like it better than the live-action series. Well, it's always a possibility. I have toyed with the idea of doing a purely animated episode where I do stuff like that. Let's look at some animated episodes of some shows from across the eras. You know, maybe a Spider-Man and his amazing friends. Maybe an, an episode of Planet of the Apes. Anything. Anything like that, really. Maybe Fonzie and the Happy Days Gang. Oh, or Dungeons and Dragons. Dungeons and Dragons was great. I used to really enjoy that. Anyway, that's it for this time. Thank you to the people who emailed in. I hope you enjoyed this little impromptu commentary on Mirror Mirror, which is celebrating its 50th birthday this year. See you next time. Goodbye. <laughs>